the last section there, and Paul has, in that section, he is addressing specifically the sins of the Gentiles. And it's important that we see that in verse 18 and 19, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So Paul, really we could look at verse 18 and 19 as all creation, all men, and then in verse 20 through 32, he, he hammers home that the, he's talking about the Gentiles, those who do not have the law. Well, once we come to chapter 2, we see a change, a shift. Paul has talked about the Gentiles and the Greeks, and now he's going to address the issue of the Jews. And, and we see that in verse 1. And it says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. The ESV has it this way, and I actually think this is a better translation. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another or others... You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So what is the the Apostle Paul getting at? And I think this is really important because the one thing that is missing, if you look in verse 32, is that Gentiles are giving hearty approval to sin. You see the difference? We see in verse 1, here are people who are judging others for sin Whereas in verse 32 of chapter 1, we see that they are approving of this even though they know it's wrong. So we have a difference of, of person, and I believe it's talking about the Jews, because they had a national identity of Pharisaism or being hypocrites. They would judge someone else but do the same thing. Just, just remember, remember the time when the all these Jewish men brought the one woman who was caught in the act of adultery. It was interesting. Why didn't they bring the man too? Did you ever think about that? Why was it just the woman? And what was Jesus' response? He acted like he didn't hear him at first. And then finally they, they realized, oh, he doesn't want to listen to us. And, and finally Jesus says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And guess what? Their hearts judged them. And it's interesting, the oldest to the youngest in that order walked away. They were hypocrites and they knew it. And that's what I believe the Apostle Paul is getting at here is the part where we judge others and we don't deal with sin in our own lives. And here he's specifically addressing Jews. Jews who are not born again. Because they assumed, and we will see this, they assume that because they know the truth, they're okay. That just in knowing, they're good. But what Paul is saying is, you know, verse 32 of chapter one, you know the ordinance of God, 
and you know that those who practice things are worthy of death, and you tell people that, right? You're the Jews, you tell people that, but the problem is you're doing the same things. Maybe it's not exactly the same, but you're, I mean, if we le- read that list that is given to us from verse 29 to chapter 30, or verse 31 of chapter 1, we see many different things. Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips. The Jews were pretty good at gossip. They wanted to talk about how they were better than Jack Black over here and whoever else over there. But the problem is they are also judging others at the same time. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, you're condemning yourself because you know the truth. You're preaching against it and you're doing the same thing. See, you're... You're not with it. You don't have an excuse. This is inexcusable. And just like the Gentiles, they are suppressing the truth that they know. The difference is they know more truth than the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? They have, according, if you look real quick over at chapter 3, And it says in verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or, or what is the benefit of circumcision? And in verse 2, he says, Great in every aspect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the Jews, he's saying, You don't have an excuse because you have even greater revelation of God. And so your sin is even greater than them. Why? Because... You know these truths and you know about God more intimately than the Gentiles who all they have, as you will later see, has the word, has God's law written on their hearts. But they have God's revelation of himself, the Old Testament scriptures. So they have this and yet they're judging and condemning others and living in sin themselves. I think it's important that we realize that Paul is not saying that we should not judge sin. Paul is, the issue that Paul is saying is we must apply truth to us first before we apply it to anyone else. Just like Jesus used the, the parable or the, you know, get the log out of your eye before you take the splinter out of somebody else's eye. We see this throughout the Old Testament as well. Just think about, remember Judas, he got mad at his daughter-in-law who got pregnant by him. Remember, I know this is not a very nice story, but through, through that, he was going to kill her. And she said, you're the man. She showed him his staff and his signet ring. And he's like, you're the man. And he goes, oh, I have been unjust. I was about to judge you, and I had been unjust. Or David, I mean, prime example. Remember, Nathan comes to him. He tells him about this man who's stolen his neighbor's sheep, even though he has a thousand sheep, or I'm making up numbers there. But he's come and taken his, his neighbor's prize-only lamb and slain it for his guests. And what does David say? 
He must be punished. And what does Nathan say in reply? You're the man. And that's the difference. All of us can be this way, right? All of us can fall into this trap of judging sin in someone else and doing the same things ourselves, right? Every one of us, I mean, just think about it. You see something, somebody doing something on the road, maybe they cut you off or... Um, I mean, road examples are everywhere. But let's just say they've cut you off. How many times have you done the same thing? Maybe not purposely, but you've done the same. We're not any different. And, that, and that's the thing. We cannot pass judgment unless we have searched our own hearts. And the apostle is getting to a point... The problem is they think that because God has given them so many blessings, as we see, that they're going to be okay. And then verse 2, he moves on. He says, so you're condemning yourself because you are acting as the judge. And he says in verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So there's no excuse Again, we're looking back at 132. And this expression here that says, the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, it's the idea that the facts of the case prove that God's judgment against those who practice such things is just. God is always just. God does not show favoritism. That is the theme of Romans 2, 1 through 16. God does not show favoritism. He chooses whom He wills, but He will not be unjust. And God will judge all. Again, that goes back to verse 18 of chapter 1. God will judge all unrighteousness and ungodliness without respect of persons. I know you're you're going to hear this theme multiple times, but that's something we have to get into our head because that's what Paul is addressing. The Jews think, well, if I if I uh, just uh, as long as I'm a Jew, I'm okay. I'm circumcised. I'm good. All I need to know is the truth. And to prove this, there was a there's a intertestamental uh, writing, and I think Paul is addressing this issue specifically. It's called it's in the book called The Wisdom of Solomon. In verse 15, 1 and 2 says, But thou our God art kind and true, patient and and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. So what do we see here? This Jewish writing that's not Scripture, is what's it teaching? Well, you know, even if we sin, we're going to be okay. It's not a big deal. We're, we're Jews. We're yours. That's all that matters. We're going to just fall on your mercy and hope that you'll be okay. And honestly, that's very similar to... Islam today. We know your power and, and 
We're just hoping that you're kind and patient with us. So, to prove this point, the Apostle Paul asks us a question. Verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What's the answer to this question? Of course not. That's, this is a rhetorical question. Paul is putting it out there as a question, but when they read it, they know what he's saying. He's saying, of course you will not escape the judgment of God. Of course you will not escape because you are doing sin. God's righteousness demands judgment. You live in sin and you think that you'll be okay. But you're going to judge somebody else and say, well, absolutely, I am certain that, and you throw a name out there, find a celebrity, put their name on it. I know they're going to hell. But what about us? Are we dealing with sin in our lives? Are we as Christians dealing with sin? Because here he's talking about unregenerate Jews who thought that because they knew the law, they were okay. Because they had been called out of Egypt, they were the descendants of Abraham, they were okay. The Apostle Paul is really asking the question, why should he show you special privilege when you're doing the same thing as the Gentiles? Right? That's what he's saying. A commentator says about the first three verses, he says, God's judgment falls on those who do such things. Even the self-righteous judge of others does such things. Therefore, even the self-righteous judge stands under God's judgment. So Paul is trying to say, look, whether you're a Jew or you're a Greek, you're under the authority of God's law. If you think for a moment that because God has shown grace to you that you're going to be okay, that's not enough. I was reading an article in a, in a psychology uh, magazine, very interesting, but I was shocked to read these things. So I think it's important to see the world hates hypocrites, don't they? How many people in the world will blame hypocrites for the reason why they don't follow God? So this is what they say. When we hypocritically condemn someone's immoral behavior... We disguise our own personal misbehavior with a veil of persuasiveness or manipulation. It's actually easier to see through an outright lie than a hypocrite's condemnation. Isn't that interesting? Completely secular magazine, and this is what they say. That's God hates a hypocrite because we are 
acting like we're good, just like the, remember the Pharisee, he went to pray, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. And then the, the, the publican comes and he says, oh God, forgive me, I am wicked. See the difference? The Pharisee thinks, oh, I'm so good, so much better than everyone else. And yet, this other man, he comes and tells the truth in his prayer to God. I think this is a part of God's image in us, that he implants in us. That That's why we hate hypocrites, whether we're Christian or not. Because we don't want to hear people who say they're righteous talk to us that way unless they truly are in God. The, the article goes on and said, Hypocrites are like a special type of liar who puts extra effort into disguising their misbehavior and sending us false signals of moral superiority. And those false signals drive our contempt. That's what the Jews are doing. They're, they're trying to hide their own sin in a mask of Oh, I'm so much better than you. Because God chose me. There must have been something about me that, that made God choose me, right? Well, Paul asked another question, another rhetorical question. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to Repentance. I kind of like to put the word in place of or. Maybe the problem is you don't you 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 think lightly of the riches of his kindness and lightly of his the riches of his tolerance and lightly of the riches of his patience, as though you don't know the kindness of God leads you to repentance. This this is again a rhetorical question. The absolute answer is. If it's a rhetorical question, what would you say the answer is? He's not giving options. The same answer, no, absolutely not. The problem is not that they don't know this truth. It's that they haven't ever wanted to consider it. And this idea of taking it lightly, thinking lightly of it, they are taking it for granted. And in, in, in the King James, they, it's translated, you despise the riches of His kindness, the riches of His tolerance, and the riches of His patience. As though you don't know. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. So I want us to see God has poured out His riches on the Jews. We saw that in verse three, chapter 3, verse 1. They had the oracles of God. And verse, chapter 9, verse 4 says, Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises? Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. 
So we see here what riches of kindness God has poured out on His people, the Jews. And that's not just pastime. They experienced Christ in the flesh walking through their villages and towns, preaching the truth. He died on a hill in Galilee. They have despised all God's kindness to them. If you look back in the Old Testament, I just think of the book of Judges. How many times did God show patience? They would get into deep sin. God would send a leader, deliver them, and they would go right back into it. God would send another leader right back into it. Another leader back in. It was a constant cycle of sin and partial repentance. And that wasn't the end. All the kings of Israel, especially the northern tribes, they were constantly returning to their sin. Constantly worse than the last king. Hundreds of years, God showed grace to them. And yet, they never repented. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at. God's kindness, verse 4, is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not a favor so that you can just live how you want. The world is experiencing God's kindness today because God is desiring to see the lost saved. That applies to all of us. If God had decided on the day that Adam and Eve sinned against Him to ex- execute His judges right away, justice right away, would He have been wrong? No. But God in His kindness had a plan. He had a plan that involved Him sending His Son to die. God shows kindness to all men. But with the Jews, it's the riches of his kindness, the riches of his tolerance, and the riches of his patience. They experience it at a point that no other has. And honestly, I think many of us can relate to this who grew up in the church. At least those who had, I mean, this country has experienced God's blessing financially, physically, in many different ways. But unfortunately, God's kindness has been rejected and despised. And we're seeing our country go the way of the world. Rejecting God. So though God had poured out the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience on the Jews, it didn't lead to repentance for the majority. There were... There were some, and we read those stories in the Old Testament, and even in the New. I mean, Paul was an example. I mean, he was hating God when God got a hold of him. And it brought about repentance. But the majority fall in the category of verse 5. So if we look at verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So we see, there's a a commentary that I like. He, talking about the transition from 4 to 5, he says, it's as though Paul is saying, you've missed the great lesson and purpose of the goodness of God as it bears upon your responsibility. Not knowing has in this case the force of not considering and implies that the purpose of God's goodness was so patient that failure to understand was totally inexcusable. God was so patient with them. He's been so patient with us, and that's why we have to deal with sin in our lives. I think it's important we understand repentance. Repentance, and he, he defines this as too, means change of mind and refers to that transformation registered in our consciousness by which in mind, feeling, and will we turn from sin unto God. It requires everything. We can't just physically change direction. It has to be our entire being. And that's what Paul is getting at. The issue with the Jews is they know the truth. They act like they lived the truth. But in reality, they are living for self. They're rejecting God. So because they are hard-hearted and unwilling to repent, God says they're storing up wrath for themselves. I like to think of it, it's translated in the King James, treasuring up wrath. And that's that's actually the word in the Greek is treasuring up something. So they're treasuring up wrath They're stockpiling wrath for the day that is coming. Because all that they are doing is for self. And all they're going to find is wrath. Their treasure is on the earth and not in heaven. It's the opposite of what we see in Luke chapter 12. If you want to turn there really quick. Luke 12, 33. Thirty-three and thirty-four, and I'm not con- saying you need to sell everything and do this. So, but <laughs> you understand what he's saying: sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we see kind of a a contrast here. Believers are treasuring up everything in heaven. The world looks around and says, why would I want to be a Christian? They don't have really nice cars. Some do. Generally, Christians don't have all the that the world has when it comes to physical possessions. Why would I want that? And they're mocked. 
made fun of. But the difference is they're storing up treasure in heaven. We should be storing up treasure in heaven. But here the Jews are not doing that. They're ignoring. They're unwilling to repent. And in doing that, they're storing up wrath for the day that God comes. And His unrestrained justice is shown to the world. To this point in time, we have not experienced that in this world. We don't experience the full measure of God's wrath in the days that we live in. God is still showing mercy and grace. But when the day of wrath comes, God's wrath will be completely fulfilled. And all that stockpile and treasure of wrath that we are storing up because we have rejected God, because we have taken lightly His kindness to us, it will accuse us. See, remember this? Remember when I showed you kindness there? Or I showed you patience there? Or I was long-suffering with you? And you still rejected me? No one will stand before the judgment throne of God and be able to accuse God of injustice. Never. If some want to say, well, this judge was on earth with human judges. Well, he's unjust. He's, I'm sure somebody's bribing him or, or whatever it may be. But God is not that way. God is always just and righteous. And that's the point Paul is making. God will not be impartial. And that's where we see in verse 6, he says, Who will render to each person according to his deeds? So we see who's going to render it? God. God is the judge. To whom each person, individually, we all have to hold account. And for what reason or what purpose or, or by what means will he know his deeds? This is really important that we understand this, this quotation because it seems like verse 6 and verse 17 of chapter 1 are in conflict, right? Because he says, well, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And over here he's saying, well, each man will be judged according to his deeds. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? A lot of people want to say that. I don't believe so because he says, the righteous man shall live by faith. And that, that idea is that when we live by something, it requires action. Our faith propels us to do things. When we say we believe God, then we are propelled to live that way. So, it's thought that Paul is quoting two passages, and I want us to see these really quick. Proverbs chapter 24. Now, whether he's quoting, thinking about both verses or one specific verse when he quotes, the same idea is coming across. So in Proverbs 21, or 12, 24, sorry, verse 12, it says, 
If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? I think this, this is really important because we see him talking about God knowing the heart. God knowing what is in our soul, what, why we're doing things. So our actions are just proof of what's in the heart. Proof of what we believe. And so we're not to be, verse 1 of chapter 24, we're not to be envious of evil men. Or to desire to be like them. Because in the end, what are they doing? They're storing up wrath for themselves. All these men who seek injustice. But we are to be the opposite. We are to seek justice. It says here, in verse 11, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are, stag- are staggering to slaughter. Hold them back. So the wicked, they seek to do injustice. They don't care. But we as Christians should be the opposite. We should seek to help the oppressed. To, by God's power, to see them pulled out of darkness. And the other passage is Psalm 62. It's interesting that both these passages have the same wording in the, the quote, but have, and have the same Implication. Psalm 62. My soul waits in silence for God only. For Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him All of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. You have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. He repeats that there. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. It's so interesting how this psalm and Proverbs 24 are so paralleled. Our hope should not be in men. It should not be in wickedness. It's so easy for us to look at the world around us and say, well, I mean, this guy is wicked and it seems like everything is going his way. I think I'm just going to give up trying to live for Christ. I'm going to give up 
hoping in God, which we'll see later. Instead, I'm going to follow my own ways. God said, no, that is not the answer. That's what the Jews have done. They have kept the parts of God that they like, and then they're living like the world. God will render to us according to his deeds, each of us. But those deeds spring forth from faith, and that's the point that James is making. If you want to contrast Paul and James, you're missing the point. Paul is focusing on the fact that it starts with God, that our justification comes from God. And what James is saying is, if you have no works behind your faith, it's dead. It's completely false. D.A. Carson said of this, he said, A work is properly good only as the whole of the person and life are found in it. So what's he saying? He's saying, if all of us, every part of us, our soul, our heart, are not found in doing the work that God has said, it's useless. Because that's what the Jews were doing. They were doing empty sacrifices. They were constantly doing the same things, but nothing changed. There was no heart change. And that's what Paul is getting at. You know the truth, but you don't live by it. It's not fully in you. And this is only possible by faith and being transformed. It must start in the heart. Now, in verse 7, Paul shows the difference between those who do righteousness, who are living according to God, will and then in in verse 8 he he shows us those who live for themselves and then in verse 9 we see what their experience of those who disobey in verse 10 we see the experience of those who obey paul is just constantly hammering home this point god will show justice to all Verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And then verse 10 it says, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We see a contrast here. In verse 8 it says, But those who are selfishly ambitious do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So what, what characterizes those who are persevering in doing good? They have believed the truth and have to determine to live in that truth no matter what the cost. That's what perseverance is about. They know trials will, trials will come. They know that difficulties will come. But they have decided we will continue 
to do what God has shown us. They have decided we will obey God. Why? Because they are looking elsewhere. They're seeking the glory that only comes from God. The honor that only comes from God. And immortality which can only come from God. Eternal life. Their treasures truly are in heaven. They realize that the glory that they're looking for comes as they draw closer to God. That they begin to glorify God and to be transformed to the the point where when they see Christ face to face, what does it say? We will be like Him. That they will reflect His glory to the world. That's what we are to do. When we're talking about honor, the world rejects them. They, they seek to tear them down. But these people, those who persevere, they're not seeking man's desires and will. They're seeking God's pleasure in them. They're seeking the honor that He alone gives. Immortality. Or another version says, incorruption. They have placed their treasure where it will not fade and it will not be corrupted. It can't be stolen, can't be taken. No thief can come into their home and take what they treasure. Even if they take their life, they can't take that treasure. Eternal life cannot be taken from us by man. John Murray says this, The complementation of perseverance in well-doing and the aspiration of hope underlies the lesson that these may never be separated. These are the perseverance and a hope that comes from aspiring to be like God, to be like Christ, can't be separated. Aspiration without redemptive hope are dead works. When we're aspiring to be like God through His power, through His Spirit, they're dead works if it's not because we see the hope in Christ. And if we go the other way that we are trying to do good things with, or be good without good works, we're presuming that God will like us just because of who we are. Now, Paul, in verse 8, he contrasts this to what unbelieving Jews... Because, again, we're talking... He's talking... He's not specific yet, but in verse 17, he's going to say, I've been talking to you Jews about this. But they would have understood from verse 1 that he was talking about them. He says, but to those, so in contrast to those who are persevering, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So he's 
contrasting the reward of those who are obeying the truth, who are obeying righteousness, and who are seeking God's glory, God's honor, and the immortality that comes with that, So we see that transition here, and he's saying, look, those who are in active insurrection against God, that's what we see here. Selfish ambition is in complete rebellion against God. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, and it's happened ever since. Our tendency and our desire to sin is rebellion against the authority of God. And this, where it says, do not obey the truth, I would like to say they refuse to obey the truth. I will not obey the truth. That's essentially what they're saying. And they love to do unrighteousness. And because of their refusal to obey the truth, their wages that they're saving up are wrath. Right? That treasure that they're accumulating, it's, it's the wages of their sin. Right? They're, they're storing it up. They put it in a bank account. This is my bank account for, of wrath. I've got a few million... Uh, dollars of wrath in there. I've been saving up my my wages. And that wrath, as we said last week, is revolting. It's God's revulsion against them and their unholiness. And this Wrath that is coming, it is unrestrained. We have never seen in the history of the world this wrath except in Christ. Christ bore the wrath of God due us. But the whole world will experience it that day. Indignation. These are both terms of how God feels towards men. His action towards men. But indignation is similar to wrath. We think of it as anger, but it's the sense of the violence that God acts in against wrath. So we see God's side, his indignation, his wrath against this. And now in verse 8, we see, or sorry, verse 9, we see what ungodly men experience we see the consequences in the human experience of god's displeasure it says but those who are sorry they will be they there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil they will experience tribulation they will experience distress and anguish Why? Because they're doing evil. They're living for sin. They reject God. They refuse to obey God. 
They hate They hate righteousness and they love unrighteousness. These Jews who think, oh, I'm so good. I'm great. I'm, I'm following God. And that's contrasted with verse 10. So in verse 7, we, we see what they're seeking and look what they get. They actually get what they've been seeking. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. What a contrast. Those who are living for sin, what do they get? Tribulation and distress. But believers who are following hard after God, they get the glory they've been seeking after. They get the honor, not for themselves, but for God. They're honored by God. And they get peace, which is incorruptible. Isn't that amazing? That is what they get. It's interesting, verse 9 and verse 10 both end of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Why is Paul saying this? It goes all the way back to what I said in the beginning. God is not impartial. God is not going to say, well, since you're Jews, it's okay. No big deal. You know, you can sin a little bit more and it'll be okay. It'd be like... Me calling a hotel and saying, hey, uh, I am really needing a room tonight. I know that you're probably booked up, but could you, could you cancel somebody else's reservation and give me their room? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a rewards member, platinum, super diamond, whatever, rewards member. And, and what if, what if the, the, the lady on the other side said, um, <clears throat> so what you're saying is, if in five minutes I had this, somebody else call me and say, well, I'm a platinum member. I, I'm actually, I've been to this hotel 20 times and he's only been there for one. I think you should give me his room and cancel his. Would that be okay? What would my response be? No, absolutely not. I want the room. But we're being hypocritical. That, that's the thing. We want to be shown special privilege. But God is calling us to holy living that is drawn from faith. Just as we wouldn't want somebody to cancel our hotel or even our flight, uh, a ticket or anything, we wouldn't want that to happen because somebody was showing preference. Would we? I hope not. And God is the same way. God is just. He's put this in our hearts and we see that here. Because verse 11 says, For there is no partiality with God. God is not playing favorites. In verse 11, it's kind of a transition from, from this to seeing how the law applies here to the Jews and to the Gentiles. God is not partial. How do we know this? Why is this true? 
Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I think this is pretty self-explanatory. Whether you sinned and did not have the law, or you have the law and are judged by it, God is not impartial in His judgment. And His justice is always according to truth. So He answers the question that may come to your mind after reading, and all who have sinned other law will be judged by the law. In verse 13, why don't those who have the law receive special privilege? What does he say? For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The hearers, not the doers. Because hearing the law is not what justifies someone. It is in the doing of that law that justifies. And we know that no one can do the law of themselves. It is only through the power of Christ and the resurrection power and the Holy Spirit within us that we can overcome sin. And that Paul gets to that. Don't worry, we'll get there. But we, by hearing the truth, is not enough. I think oftentimes growing up in the church, especially for my generation and those who follow I think second-generation Christians fall into this trap so many times. We, we think that just because we hear something, it's true for us. But we've never applied it to our lives. We've never taken the truth and said, you know what? I believe it. I'm going to live by it. Do we believe that the gospel is necessary for salvation? Why aren't we preaching the gospel? Why aren't we sharing the gospel? That's just an example. Do we truly believe what we say we believe? Do we truly believe what we're hearing? If it's in God's Word, we need to find out. And then in verse 13 or 14, Paul asked the first question that came to my mind. Why are the Gentiles judged? They didn't have the law. This is, this is the argument so many people make to deny Christianity. Well, how can God judge these tribes in the middle of nowhere? They, they've never heard the gospel. That's, that's essentially the same question that Paul is addressing. And what does he say? He's indicting the Jews who have the law. And he says, For when the Gentiles do, who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness of their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So Paul's saying, they are without excuse. It goes back to what we talked about in Romans 1.20 and following. The creation reveals God, not completely, not savingly, but they still reject God without 
hearing the gospel. Even if they heard the gospel, they would still reject God. They are not innocent before God. So what's he saying? He's saying, though they don't have the law, they don't have the written law. And this is important because he's speaking, those of you who know English language, well, in the Greek is the same way. They have the definite article, which means the law, not a law, the law. He's referring specifically to the law of the Old Testament. So they don't have the law. They don't have the stone tablets or the written law. But by nature, they desire to do those things. That doesn't mean that they don't have original sin because we know that that is true. What he's saying is even, I can see this with my kids. They want and sometimes do good things. But then other times, they don't want to do anything that authority tells them to do. And those of you who are grandparents even know that as much as you might try to give them candy. <laughs> you, you might be easy on them, but sometimes our children are proof of this, what Paul is saying here. Proof that God, in verse 15 it says, that God has written the law the law on their hearts. The law of Moses, the commands of God are on the hearts of all men. Jew, Gentile. He's specifically talking about the Gentiles right now because the Jews had the written law. They had the Torah, the, the, the whole Old Testament. Revelation. But here he's saying that it's written on their hearts. Verse 15. And they reveal the law to themselves. What does that mean? A law of God to themselves. It's a really interesting phrase. And I think what he's saying is they are a law to themselves. They, their own conscience condemns them. Why? Because the conscience is informed by the law written on their heart. It's telling them. No, that's wrong. Just as once I tell my kids one thing, if I say no to once, then, uh, like even James, as little as he is, he, he knows what the word no means, yet he still wants to touch it, or he still wants to grab it. But his heart, because he looks at me, oh, Maybe I can get away with this. Maybe it's going to be okay. But his start, even his little heart, at, it, at as little as he is, his heart is condemning him. It's telling him, no, that's not right. You know it's not. You can see it in their eyes, right? They may not completely understand everything, but their conscience is already at work. And that conscience shows them that the law, and it proves that the law is written on their heart. That's what he says here in verse 15. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alter, uh, alternately, uh, I cannot speak, 
I read it right earlier, but I'm going to give up. No. <laughs> Alternately, accusing or else defending them. So when our hearts are condemning us or exhorting us to do the right thing, our conscience is bearing witness to this and telling us, no, you shouldn't do that. Yes, that is right. It's telling us what our, what's written on our heart, that God's law. But can we sear that conscience? Yes, we, we all know when we let sin stay, eventually we believe and our heart becomes hardened and we believe that we're doing right when we're doing wickedness. But the guilt stays. If we cannot convince our conscience, which is informed by God's law in our heart, that what we're wanting to do is right, that guilt will stick with us until we repent, right? How many of you all have fallen into sin? You knew it was sin. You chose to do it. And then it wasn't until you repented that you could feel that weight of guilt go away. On the, the other side, if, if we believe it is right, we can't justify doing it any other way. Right? It's not easy. We know that our friends aren't going to like it. We know that this is right, but if we do anything else, we'll feel guilty. The question is, do we ignore our conscience, consciences and live with guilt? That guilt is really proof of the law written in our heart. Or do we obey that law and have peace? So no one is without excuse. The Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. Whether they obey it or not is a different story. The Jews had the written law, complete revelation. No doubt about what God has said. So on the day when God will judge the secrets of man through Jesus Christ, which is according to Paul's gospel, verse 16, on that day, will anyone stand before God and God say, you know what, you were pretty good, I think I'll let you slide. I think, I think you're going to be okay. Is God going to do that? From reading Romans 2, 1 through 16, do we see that here? No. God is impartial. He does not show favoritism. That is the whole point of chapter 2, 1 through 16. And honestly, you could, you could tie that in to the next section, but altogether we see that God doesn't show favoritism. If we choose to live in sin and reject the kindness and the mercy, the grace, the patience of God with us, we're storing up wrath for ourselves. I think this passage specifically speaks more clearly to the church. Because many of us came out of the world or 
we were maybe grew up in the church, but God showed us our wickedness. But when we forget what God has brought us out of, we begin to be like the Jews here and become hypocrites. We start to judge others when we ourselves are sinning in the same way. We, for example, maybe, maybe we, we judge our co-workers for cursing or somebody we see on the street, but we have no problem watching movies that are full of cursing. Is it any different? I have a hard time believing it's different. And I have to, I have to indict myself. When I was in college, I, I got to the point where one time God just like hammered me with that. How can you talk about this and you live watching this trash, listening to this trash? And then after God dealt with me that in a way, I think it was a year or so, I went to somebody's house, and they were watching an R-rated movie, and I sat down for a minute, and the first, like, less than three minutes into the movie, of the movie, there was so much cursing, I, I was like, and I remembered I had watched that movie, and it was like a hammer to my head, like, you, you were approving of this. You were approving this, but then you would go out and share the gospel. Talking about how God, I was a hypocrite. And so we, we, we have to look at our lives. Not that we become legalistic, but we have to look at our lives. God, just like the Jews here, they thought they were okay because they were, they were in the end group. But the problem was they had heard all this truth their whole lives. And yet they still never repented. So if we are unwilling to repent of our sins and deal with sin in our own lives, we cannot be going around telling other people how they've messed up in that way. I'm not saying that there doesn't, again, judgment. We have to make judgment in the church. We have to discipline in the church. We have to deal with sin in the church. But individually, if we are not dealing with our sin, we won't, one, we won't have peace, and we will feel like a hypocrite. Right? If we are living in sin, we will feel like sinners. So what is the application of what we see today? What, what Paul has said? What are the implications for us as believers? Because obviously he's talking about Jews who are unbelievers. But I guess that first implication is, since God is impartial, we should not think, well, that little sin is no big deal. If we know it is sin and we don't deal with it, what's going to happen? It's going to snowball and before long, God is going to hit us with verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart... So, if we have unrepentant sin in our hearts today, we're storing up wrath. That does not mean that God's blood, the blood of Jesus, cannot cleanse us. But if we are unrepentant, then maybe we're proving that we're not of His. 
Maybe though we are circumcised, as he talks about later, in the heart, we, we think we're circumcised in the heart, but in, in reality, we're just like everybody else in the world. We're lost. So the first implication for us and application is deal with sin in your life. And deal with it at the moment God convicts you. Don't let it, don't let it weigh out. And number two, live what you believe. That is so clear. Don't just hear something today or, or any other time when you come here or what God shows you in the Word. We should be reading Scripture with the purpose of living for Christ. God, when I come to Your Word, I want to know how to live for You. Show me areas of my life that need to be transformed. Areas of my life that need to change. Areas where my works are not proving where my hope is. So that's number two for believers. We need to repent of sin, known sin. We need to ask God to show us how to live for Him. We need to constantly be seeking how God's Word applies to our lives. And then for those who think they're believers or, or know they're not believers, God is not going to be impartial with you. He is not going to be impartial with you because you grew up in a certain family, because you came from a certain socioeconomic class, because you're from a Christian family. No matter where you came from, God's justice must prevail. God's facts. God will look at the facts of the case and say, well, I see that you have been in sin. You, you've tried to do good things, but it always was for selfish reasons. It was always you wanted somebody to like you. You, you were seeking somebody else's pleasure in you. You wanted people to think well of you, but in reality, all that you've been doing has been legalism. You're just like these Jews. You, you are trying to pass judgment on others when really in your heart you're a sinner. You're unrepentant and you need Jesus to, to transform your life. So if you're, if you're that person today, remember Romans 1.17. Remember that the righteous man shall live by faith. We must find our hope in Jesus Christ. There is no way in our own ability that we can please and fulfill the righteous demands of God. But in Christ, He gives us a new spirit, a desire to live for Him. Does that mean we live without sin? No. And that's why we have to be repentant as believers. Don't be stubborn and unrepentant in heart. If you're an unbeliever or if you if God is saying, you know what, you are that person, you are. Don't don't walk away today thinking. I'll be OK. God, God knows me. Our hope has to be totally in him. 
If you leave today with anything else, it's, it should be that God is not partial. God is fully just. He will always judge rightly. The question is, where are you finding your justification? Are you looking to your works alone? Are you looking to your knowledge, what you know? Are you looking to Jesus? Because that's the only hope. It's not in what we know. It's not in what we do alone. It's the mixture that is, that is brought by faith in a transformed life. Because one day we will stand before Christ. And He will have one of two things to say to us. He will either say, I never knew you. You, you may have thought it, but I never knew you. Or, He will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Faithfulness requires action. It requires Living. Our goodness comes from God and through Him. But it requires surrender on our parts, obedience. That's all that I have, and I pray, I pray that we remember that one day we will stand before a holy God. Just as if you go and walk through a cemetery... All those people who have died and gone on, they're standing, they've stood before a righteous judge, just as we have or will. And when that day of judgment comes for all man, they will experience either one of those two responses. The question is will you experience? His loving embrace or His vengeance? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Spirit speaks to us. Or while the message of Your impartiality is hard at times because we, we want You to show special favors to us, Lord, but in reality, Lord, it's great news because we know what you have done in Christ and we know that in Christ we have hope and that you you aren't being impartial to us when we are repentant and, and we're walking in the power of the blood and that it's in, in ju your justification of us that we can do that Lord we thank you God that you're a just God because it makes your love so much greater Lord, help us not to forget what is due those who live in unrepentance. Lord, deal with us this week that we would not be men and women who, who live in sin, but Lord, that we would deal with sin. That we would crucify the old man every day. That we would take up our cross and follow You. Lord, encourage us in faith. Encourage us to persevere. 
Remind us, Lord, of the glory and honor, immortality, the eternal life that you give. Help us to find our hope in you. For you alone, Lord, are worthy. Or teach us to find your word with delight. Give us a delight for your word that when we read your word, we're compelled to live by it. That we're compelled to preach it faithfully. To share what we know with others. Lord, be with us this week. Be with your church. Lord, we're only here because we believe that you are with us. Just pray, Lord, that you would guide us this week. Help us to be faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.